I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice. And this is our Giro Stage 10 recap podcast brought to you by our show partner, LaCole. Now, if you want to go and check out our interview facilitated by LaCole yesterday with Pay a Bill Bow. That's the podcast yesterday. It might be worthwhile checking that out based on what happened on this stage. But as you know, a Giro show is made possible by LaCole, the fastest growing kit manufacturer in the world. They produce only road cycling apparel focusing on performance and they supply the apparel to Byron McLaren in the World Tour Pro Peloton. They got a discount code for us now too. LR Giro 15, all caps, LR Giro 15 for 15% off. Go to www.lecole.cc, L-E-C-O-L.cc to get yourself a discount at the checkout. But onto this Giro Stage 10, one of the best stages in a Grand Tour I've watched in many, many years. It was unbelievably good, and we're going to try and do it justice in this podcast. Just an overview of the profile today, 177 kilometers from Lanciano to Tortoretto and rolling parkour, particularly in the last third. So there was a Category 4 to Chieti, where I believe ooh, there was a Sereno Adriatico finish this year, 1.4 Ks, 9.6%. Then a few more rolling climbs, a valley for about 30 kilometers right in the middle uh, before the first intermediate sprint. Then the climb started properly. Tortoretto climbed 2.3 Ks at 8.3%, another valley for about 10, 12 kilometers, then a Liège-style finish, but even harder than Liège climbs. Colonella, 3Ks, 8.6%, but we got proper 15 to 17% ramps in these climbs too. Descent straight into the next climb, Contraguerra, 1K, 9.1%, descent, climb, descent, climb, descent, climb, the last of those climbs being the Torretoretto, a different side of it, 2Ks at 7.5%. Then a descent into about mm, 12Ks of flat into the finish of Torretoretto. So, yeah, these five climbs all bunched together in the finale from 132 to 165Ks with no flat in between. It was raining at the finish as well. Technical roads, just a magic stage. And... But before we get into what happened in this stage, we have to mention some news before it started. Benji's got this long list, and he's written it down because there's so many names. Unfortunately, COVID has struck the Giro once again. Yes, I'm not going to name every single rider, but there have been two teams that didn't start this morning. Firstly, we started off with La Gazzetta posting an article that was quickly removed that there were two riders and staff, I think five staff members, I'm not sure about the staff member amount, that contracted COVID. Those staff members were at the likes of Ineos, I think, at Archizera as well, but I'm not sure about that one. So I won't just spread fake news. I'll talk about the riders that I do know. We knew that Kreisweg was positive on COVID. Also, Michael Matthews of Sunweb. So that's Sunweb and Jumbo. 
but also Mitchelton, who decided this morning, pretty early on, that they weren't going to continue racing the Giro for a precaution towards their riders a bit late, I'd say, if you make this kind of decision. But I think staff members of Mitchelton contracted it as well, so it's circling around in the team, so perhaps a good decision for the team itself. But after that, we also heard that because of Kreiswijk falling out of Jumbo, Jumbo also decided for the safety of their team and the staff members to get out of the race and not start either today. Very late on, so about 10 minutes before the start, they just didn't show up at the starting podium and then announced it. So very late on. And another name that was also not starting was Craddock. Uh, there's no real clear view on why he was out of the race. It's nothing COVID-related as per the news that we now know. And uh, we don't know what it is yet, but... I know why, Benji. He has to fly back to the equator now that winter's coming in Europe. <laughs> for fuck's sake. Anyway... So those are the names we don't have at the start. A DNS for Matthews, Craddock, Jumbo Visma, and Mitchelton Scott. Now, that was some bad news. When the race started, it quickly became a very, very good race because we started seeing attacks left and right in the form of, first of all, a five-man breakaway that had a bit of a gap. Ravanelli, Clark, Swift, Matisse, and Brentlett. Now, this group didn't really gain much traction, I think, up to like a good 50 seconds, and Mikkel Bjerek tried to bridge up the same way he did a few days ago. He actually made the way up there, but also the peloton did, because everything came back together just before we started the Kieti Muri, because there's plenty of climbs throughout the parkour. I'm pretty sure it's Muro, and Muri is the, like, the, the multiple Muro variant. And um, we had an attack in the peloton by Fabro, a Bora rider. He was clearly showing that Bora had a clear idea. They tried to attack with Fabro, Benedetti, and eventually they also attacked with their man, their myth, their legend, Peter Sagan, in a new breakaway that was forming. Vendrami, Ravanelli, Restrepo, Sagan himself, Cherny, Gradek, Clark, Brentle, De Gens, Gala, Gegenhard, Swift, and Bjerg. Now, that group didn't really survive for too long because they were soon facing that KT wall, and the peloton was only on a good 10 to 15 seconds. The moment they hit that wall, we saw an attack by Sagan himself. He was trying to... Well, it actually was on the descent just before the wall, but he got away with Ganna, Filippo Ganna, and they had a bit of a gap on the rest. And the others who were behind them, they got caught by the peloton again. But there was one rider from a team called Kupama FDG that didn't like that, and Konovalova started to chase the two riders up front, caused other people to react again. And a larger breakaway was formed, including the likes of Sagan, Ghana, Konovalovas, Swift, Clark, Ciccone, Cataldo, and Vilela. Now, this front group had Konovalovas. That created some tension because you've got Demar in the peloton still. And Demar is probably unhappy that Sagan can take points if this breakaway goes to the line. Since there most likely isn't the team that wants to control the race full on. Knowing at that point that... GC riders were most likely not going for the stage win here. We saw that Grupama started moving up in the peloton and they actually started chasing at a certain point. Kodovalovas dropped from the front group because there's no point in being in the front group and not helping out the chasers behind if you can be the guy chasing for the likes of a Kodovalovas. And the gap went from 57-ish seconds back to a good 20 seconds at a certain point. You feel like 
that was a good idea to start pacing from Groupama there, or should they have reacted earlier with more riders than just Konovalovas on the attack? Uh, I think they were looking for UAE to help them. So getting it down to 20 seconds was a pretty good effort. This was still in, there was a climb before that first intermediate sprint. And I don't think they were trying to keep it up all day, but they just didn't want that break to go away with Sagan. They were probably happy for a break to go up the road, but yeah, just not with Peter Sagan. And I guess we've got to give credit to Sam Bennett because it's easier said than done following Peter Sagan on rolly terrain uh, going for these intermediate sprints. This one was quite a way out, but yeah, Sam Bennett marked Sagan in Giro and Damar and FDJ missed Sagan going up the road and then kind of decided, oh shit, we better pace for this. UAE apparently decided that FDJ were going to bring it back so they didn't need to help. And that was a mistake because FDJ burnt all their men. It's these, you often see this where a gap will get brought down, brought down progressively, but you see the number of riders being whittled away. And you've got a sweet spot, a window, to actually bring, bring it back before you eventually burnt all your riders because you've got a break with Ganner in it, Sagan in it. Clark, etc. It's a pretty strong break. Swift as well. Powerful guys. And yeah, the FTJ train's pretty strong. As a lead-out train, I'm not sure they're as strong as a sort of long extended effort train. And um, yeah, they just burnt their guys and couldn't bring it back. And UAE then were yeah made the mistake because they would have to do a lot of work later. So I, I forget, Benji, what are the gap? 20 seconds was the, was the lowest. Did it then balloon out to like four minutes or something? Yeah, the gap went from 20 seconds to about 40. And you saw at the back that Groupama was giving up. And when Groupama gave up, nobody started pacing. So four minutes 40 was the gap that UAE started picking in, which is extremely late. And I don't get why. It's, you've got the rider Elise, obviously, but yeah, that's, if you have a gap of like 20 seconds earlier, then don't start pacing at 440, start pacing at maybe like 12 seconds to close the gap or at two minutes to try and control the pace, but four minutes 40 is a lot. So maybe a bit of a miscalculation on their end for me, that is uh, my view on it, but the race, it kept lighting up, lighting up, and we never really saw like, the tempo going fully down throughout the parkour because UAE just kept on the pace and we saw some other teams pick in later on. But the real battle started again once we were looking at the Colonella climb and so forth, which is in the last half of the race. That Colonella climb saw the breakaway split up a bit, saw some attacks on there. I think Ghana was quite quickly dropped in that group, but then again came back, did a small attack, got caught. It was a bit of 1v1 action in that group, but also not 1v1 since Swift was in there as well. I think Cataldo started to attack at a certain point as well, twice or three times, but he never really got the gap he hoped for and eventually got caught by that breakaway again. But we saw in the peloton that NTT was starting to pace Campanarts, Manchus, Pozzo Vivo, and that would clearly show that the GC started having interest and the moment NTT started pacing, the gap to the breakaway started dropping, and it started dropping four minutes, three minutes, two minutes, and at a certain point, the the timing said like one minute, it was like one minute twenty, because it's been off all day once again. But 
We expected the peloton to light up, and it surely did. I think UAE brought the gap down initially a bit with Mikel Björk. He is going to be an excellent road captain for a top-level GC contender very shortly. Versatile, looking good on climbs. He's looking so good in this year at Italian Mikel Björk. So just write him down as Tony Martin Light for the moment in these uh, Grand Tours. They brought it down a little bit, but yeah, as you said, Benji, NTT obviously riding for Domenico Pozzavivo must have been feeling really good. I think in the breakaway, the teams with two riders decided correctly that they needed to work over Sagan a little bit before the finale. So Movistar had Cataldo and Vieja. Uh, they were, is it, oh, he's Italian or Spanish Vieja? I'm going to say Vieja. Um, so he, they were attacking one, two. Sagan was trying to bring it back a little bit. Ineos did the same thing, sending Swift after, I think, the Cataldo, one of the Cataldo attacks. And, yeah, they they dropped Ganna on this Colonella climb, the longest climb of, of the day. And he slowly bridged his way back to them, and he did. He made a really strong move, actually, which um, was the right thing to do. I think Swift made a big mistake. Ganna attacks. Sagan was on the front looking at him, not didn't really react initially. And then I think it was Cataldo bridging. Sagan gets on Cataldo, so you got Movistar and Sagan going up the road. Swift is distanced by those two. He doesn't close them, and he looks at uh, Vieja, the other Movistar rider, who says, well, I don't really care. I mean, I got one of I got my teammate Cataldo going up the road, and I think the Androni rider was pretty cooked. So Swift made a mistake there because then he had to pull back to Ghana whilst Ghana was pulling, um, trying to bridge across to him, bringing, bringing two riders with him, and I think... Either Ghana blew up or he had to slow down because it wasn't really working for any else. So a bit of a mistake there, but probably inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Meanwhile, Peloton's pulling, pulling hard. NTT, it looks like splits are happening. Um, it looked pretty strung out. Astana as well. They didn't really have many riders there with full saying. Sunweb, once again, I feel like had the strongest, strongest numbers of riders at the front in good position. They compared to Astana and Trek. And, yeah, with, with about 40Ks to go or so, it was like two minutes um, at the base of that climb. And then there was this Contraguerra climb. It had a bonif- bonification sprint at the top. It had like a 25% pinch in it. And I think Sagan took the bonification because the Androni rider thought <laughs> that there was uh, sprint points there, which there isn't. On the the second the second climb, and your boy Benji, you might have some insight into this. We saw then in the peloton with about thirty k's to go in the peloton at like a minute thirty, Van Oka was getting dropped. Was that a mechanical, or do you know like actually what happened with him today? I generally don't know. I, it looked like he had a mechanical because he was sitting quite nicely next to Nibali and the group. He didn't really show any problems and a kilometer later he was 10 meters off the back and it wasn't even that climby of a terrain it was on a bit of a plateau section if i recall correctly so yeah i was surprised and he looked like he was coming back to the peloton but looking at his result at the end of the day he uh he didn't look too good in the end so it might have been a, a precursor to what was going to happen maybe he lost a bit of grip and had a bad moment there god was able to come back and then Collapsed a tiny bit later, so Van Hooken not really with a good day in his career, that is for sure. 
But then again, he's had a wonderful Giro for what we expected as Belgians as well from Van Hooke. So I'm proud of him nonetheless. I'm looking forward to see if he can try and take a stage win by losing a bit more time maybe in GC. So we'll be curious. But yeah, that's the story of Van Hooke. With about 23.5Ks to go, it was the Movistar boys trying to work over Swift and Sagan. But Sagan was just right climbing at a really controlled pace on the, I think it was the third to last climb. And Swift was following him. They were riding sort of side by side on the really steep pinches. This was the third to last climb. About 30 seconds behind them was the Peloton. And then I think as they crested that third to last climb, going into this wet descent, it just started raining. Peo Bilbao attacked out of the peloton and immediately got a pretty big gap. And it was Astana trying to pace and chase him back. He was sitting on third on GC Bilbao. He's got the rest day interview, what's in the legs. And he's attacking in the des- pretty much into the descent where he was taking quite a lot of risks. And it was paying off. He was gaining time quickly. And then Pozzavivo, who NTT had been working for so much, then had a mechanical... And I'm pretty sure he's probably one of those guys in the peloton who can't change his bike with a teammate because no uh, no one else's bike would fit him. He's, it's way too small. And then the bike change or whatever from the car just seemed to take ages. Um, so that was unfortunate for Pozzaviva. He would get back on later. And then Bill Bow, I think, with about 20Ks to go, had bridged across to the remnants of the breakaway in Tortoretto. So the breakaway had split up. Sagan and Swift had gone off the front. The Movistar guys, Cataldo, Vieja, Gana, etc. were like now 20 seconds behind them, I think. Bilbao goes to them and immediately pretty much drops them on that uh, second to last climb to about 1.8Ks at 8%. He's getting close to... I think it was Cataldo and, oh no, sorry, Swift and Sagan who were up the road. And then Sagan attacks with about 19 and a half Ks to go. Swift was following him. No one in the peloton was really chasing Bilbao um, and he dropped the breakaway now. And who was actually pacing in the peloton, Benji? Because it wasn't Trek um, at all. I think it was De Koenig Quickstep. And I don't know which of their domestiques it was. Yes, I think it was Peter City that did most of the work for Almeida today. He had another teammate, I don't actually know which one it was, but Peter City clearly one of the best riders in their camp at the moment to help out Almeida on these kind of stages. And he was already great on the Belgian NCs a few weeks back, so I was expecting him to be in this kind of form. But he was up there with the good guys, and he was able to bring that gap more down, but... It's not like they were catching Bilbao. They were keeping that at somewhat of a good margin. And we noticed that at the front, Sagan and Swift, that gap to Bilbao was differing as well. In those front two, we actually saw a difference on that same climb where Bilbao was reaching towards them. And we saw that Sagan was suddenly dropping Swift, who could not follow the pace. Sagan with a pretty solid acceleration on that climb. And he muscled it up. Probably some high watts, I'd say, because this looked like Sagan of the old days, Sagan of 2013, 2012, those years where he got like 10 podiums on on a, on a Tour de France. So those were wonderful days for Sagan, and today looked like it was one of those days because he dropped Swift so easily. And 
Bilbao got across to Swift, he got across over Swift, and started riding again and dropped Swift in its place. And he he looked like he was getting a bit weaker and weaker towards the front top of that ascension, because Sagan was getting away again, and I think the gap went down to 10 seconds, but it started climbing again after that, and Bilbao just started falling back a bit, but the majority of the time that Bilbao lost to Sagan was in the descent afterwards. What a descent! Like, this was in such wet terrain, that descent was pretty technical already, and we know that Sagan's a good descender, we know he's a daredevil, so I wasn't really thinking that Bilbao would catch him in the descent, but Bilbao started with the first corner, and there was such a clear difference with how Sagan took its corners there, and Bilbao did. Bilbao started speeding up in corners a bit later, so maybe at the start he had a bit of a scare in him, but that got out of that pretty quickly towards the end of the descent, but by that time, Sagan had a solid 25 seconds on him, and the peloton group was slowly but surely catching on to Bilbao, but we noticed in the peloton group that someone was off the back. A Maglia Azura, not the actual KOM jersey, but an Astana jersey with a mechanical, and it was Jakob Fulsang. Yeah, Fulsang had the worst time to have a mechanical in this race. Pozzavivo, he appeared at the front. He'd had enough time to get back to those guys. And I don't think the peloton, would, they weren't really cooperating. They weren't chasing that well. Seri was maintaining the gap to Bilbao. And Bilbao just missed out on catching Sagan. Sagan attacked when the gap was like six seconds, and then that was it. Sagan was gone, and he I think he probably rode the last Torretto climb quicker than Bilbao too. Sagan did like 580 watts for a minute 45 on that final climb, uh, which that's what Velon is saying. But it was Almeida increasing the pace on the last part of that Torretto climb, Kelderman moved up, I think it was Kelderman or Hindley, not sure which one, both the Sunweb riders look pretty good today, moved up alongside. Uh, Nibli was following okay, not major gaps to anybody, and I don't, didn't feel like a big attack from Almeida either. And yeah, Pozzavivo then countered over the top of them, whilst and then went straight into the descent, leading on the descent, and we just saw full sewing off the back, and, and we knew at that point he's going to lose at least a minute straight away. Uh, because it's a descent into the finish, 10Ks. You've got all the other GC contenders, uh, Nibali, Pottavivo, Hindley now, maybe Kelderman, Almeida, Bilbao, all off the front, and they're all going to work together. And uh, quote-unquote, the race it was certainly on at that point because uh, they were having to chase Bilbao because he was still off the front, even on, to, on the descent. They only caught him at the base of the descent with about oh, nine Ks to go. Um, so they had to chase Bilbao for the entirety of the descent. He was clearly tiring. He didn't have the same punch out of the corners. Uh, for what I saw of the Sagan descent, I hope they have a... This is what I hope RCS do or broadcasters are able to do is take the motorbike footage or the helicopter footage of Sagan's entire descent that any cuts or anything, the off-air footage, put that online somewhere for people to see because I didn't see him make any mistakes. And he went into that last 8K with about a 21-second gap over a peloton that wasn't functioning that well until I think they realised after they'd caught Bill Bow at the base of the descent, we've got full sang off the back. Um, and they started working together a little bit. And then it was Gagenhart attacking Benji. Like, Do you think that was a mistake? for Tao and Hart to attack, uh, given that Fulsang was off the back, or 
do you think his goal should really be to be trying to move up on everybody rather than focusing on, say, eliminating uh, full sang from contention? For me in general, the thought that someone attacks when someone has a mechanical is not an issue because we're in the last 10, 15 kilometers of a stage and the fire is on. Everybody's riding his soul out and I think the moment that Fulsang was off the back, we still had Bilbao a bit in front. So getting hard attacking is not really a bad thing because firstly, he's not in the top 10 yet. He's trying to move up slowly but surely and we'll need to do these kind of attacks to try and move up because he's not the rider people will be looking at. I don't think any of the top 10 GC guys will be like, oh, it's Gegenhard, we need to mark that guy. Nah, he's on a solid margin that they don't need to mark him yet. And that is an opportunity for a young guy like him to try and make a move here without anybody really chasing him down. We did see after a bit that Almeida started pacing a bit in that group again, but it wasn't really a, a proper pace. He was just controlling it in that descent as well. And I think everybody really did. But we also saw Kelderman, Pozzo, Vivo pace in that, in that peloton group when they really started putting a pace into it when Fulsang was behind. And I'm not saying that they are pacing because Fulsang was behind. I'm definitely not saying that because as a Nibali fan, I'm probably going to get it shoved towards me again. But I feel that someone having a mechanical in the last 20 kilometers shouldn't be a reason for the Peloton elite group to stop racing. It's still a bike race and they need to keep going. But what what I did notice was Fulsing had that mechanical and he lost time very quickly because you can't descend in this weather with a flat back tire. And there's no car behind. There's hardly any teammates behind. He had to wait until he had a teammate with him. So that's pretty far behind. And so he's going to lose a lot of time in that moment. But after he got a bike again, it didn't look like Fulsang was going all out for the first section on the flatter part after the descent. We saw Fulsang riding pretty hard, but towards the end of the stage, I feel like Fulsang went slower and slower and somewhat gave up in the final kilometers. But we can assess that later on after we talk about what happened in the final with the rest of the guys. So yeah, they're all attacking each other. You got Gaganhard, Almeida, uh, McNulty eventually trying to bridge across. But Sagan in a in a flat like that, they're not bringing him back. He looks so strong, looked really fresh actually, despite being in the break for two thirds of the day. And yeah, they were never bringing him back. Twenty seconds the gap, and I think it stated about that to be honest to the GC contenders. He got to savor the win over the line. Sagan's first victory in, I don't know, like nearly 800 days, his first Giro d'Italia victory, the 100th rider to now win a stage in all three Grand Tours. He got in the break at an opportune time, maybe initially just to get the intermediate sprint points. He controlled attacks from Movistar and Ineos, who were trying to one-two him throughout the day on those climbs. He then went clear, dropping the Movistar guys with Ben Swift. He just when Bill Bow was about to bridge across to him and was five seconds back, attacked on one of the steepest sections of the uh, Tortoretto climb, big watts, then big gap into Bill Bow and extended the gap or maintained the gap to a chasing and attacking GC group that was pretty large. 
and a magic descent in the wet. It just it had everything. It was an incredibly versatile win where he showed off abilities in all regards the getting in the break sprinting to get in the break working with that break climbing controlling attacking on a climb and then wet technical descent ability and then tting away at the end so one of his best stage wins uh peter again i'd encourage you to go and watch if you have time to watch a stage in full or maybe the last half of it this is the last 40k is certainly worth watching i think if you've got an hour to spare um, so yeah, fantastic win for Sagan, and I don't think we had him on our <laughs> did we have him on our list for this stage, Benji? Because uh, he didn't really look like Arno Demar crossing the finish line to me. I'm afraid I didn't even have a list for this stage because I didn't have the time yesterday evening to deliver pizza slices. I was more thinking that it would be a breakaway, but didn't anticipate Sagan being able to get in that breakaway. Not because he couldn't do it, because at the start of the stage. The hills were doable for him, but I just didn't think that people would let him go at the start in that group, and he got that initial gap with the group pretty easily, but Kupama just started pacing a tiny bit too late, I'd say. But in general, also a very beautiful stage that he won. It's a solid reminder of Tireno stages, especially the one that finished in Chieti. We had the Chieti wall somewhere at the start of the stage, I think 30, 40 kilometers in, and this brings me back to that stage that I think Contador did well at. I'm not sure he won the stage, but I recall him battling with Geshka on a stage like that. And the final five kilometers were so fucking steep. So I think these were the days with, with Tinkoff, the yellow jerseys of Tinkoff. I don't know. I'm thinking of a stage where Contador was was battling it out on these kind of muros and Ah, it's beautiful. I love this. And this was an amazing stage and will definitely stay in my mind for a bit. I wouldn't rate it as high as you did at the start of the podcast, saying it was one of the best GT stages in the last few years. But I'd rate it a top 10 of that for sure. So, yeah, I enjoyed <laughs> that, it. Yeah, that lot. means it's one of the best. <laughs> in the top 10 means it's one of the best. I'm not saying but it yeah, is the best. By the way, one of. Demar. <laughs> Arno Demar. What did you, um like... I think infinite respect you had to give me if uh, if Demar didn't make it in the peloton to this finish line. I'm afraid he didn't make it, Lantern. <laughs> he came 131st, 22 <laughs> minutes back. And I have to say, if UAE had helped pace, maybe we would have seen a different result today. Nah, that's not true. <laughs> he had no chance. I don't know what I uh, must have been. I mean, Wilder need to test me or you need to, yeah, you probably should have been concerned about <laughs> what I was thinking. I said that. I think infinite respect, yeah. Um, I'll find a way. I don't know how I should give you infinite respect, Benji, but, yeah, I'll find a way to do that. Or maybe people can comment down below on the YouTube video. <laughs> I can do that because um, I was wrong on this stage. That's, that's for sure. Uh, and I, Neither of us picked Sagan either because he's just really dialed it back to like 2013 Tirreno. I think I've made a video about that before the Giro started. I was like, wouldn't it be great to see 2013 Tirreno Adriatico Sagan or 2012 Tirreno Sagan? And we saw that certainly today. But back in the GC group, which I don't think we've closed that out, McNulty attacked out of that group and they weren't too fussed about chasing him initially. The TV graphic was saying it was uh, Mikel Björg 
for quite a while. And I was like, uh, I don't think Bjerg is, is right there. As a reminder, McNulty was like 18th, I think, on GC. He was two minutes and 50 back or something before this stage started. He eventually crossed the line 19 seconds after Sagan. And he ha- he held a gap of about 15 seconds to the other riders. Almeida, he looked really strong today. Almeida is basically similar rider, in my view, to Roglic, minus like the t- probably pure 20-minute climbing ability, um, maybe even a better time trial than Roglic. He a probably a better sprint, actually, uh, as well. He won the, the bunch kick easily, leading them out ahead of Ben Swift about four seconds behind McNulty, taking more bonus seconds as well on the line. In that group, in that GC group, Almeida, Swift, Hindley, Micah, Conrad, Kelderman, Possevivo, Bilbao, Gagenhart, Nibali, Perensteiner, and Mazenada. 50 seconds back from Sagan, 27 behind them was Zakarin, and then a minute and... Mm, 15 back from the main GC contenders was Jakob Fulsang. In a group of riders, he came across a line in a group of riders from like Sunweb, Trek, De Koenig. None of them were helping him. They're all around him, and he's just having to pull all these guys to the line on his own. He looked he looked pretty disconsolate, actually. And I think you tweeted, Benji, didn't you, that he almost looked like he sat up in the last 500. Yeah, I tweeted it, and then I deleted it because there was a huge typo in it, but the point still stands. I feel like he gave up in the last 500 meters, which is weird to see because he paced so much more between like kilometer five and two and a half. And then in the last kilometer, he was kind of sitting up between all these riders losing an extra 10 to 15 seconds by just being a bit, yeah, down, I guess. It's it's weird. He's had a lot of shit thrown at him in GCs in his career. And he tried to go for GC in the Tour de France before he had some bad luck throughout with falling over that bottle at one point, I think, if I recall correctly, on the uphill section, just crashed out of the Tour de France. And yeah, I think he also crashed last year in the Tour de France and got out of there as well. He was always up there in the top five to top 10 region before he crashed out. So it was not that he was doing a bad Grand Tour. It was just the bad luck that killed him every time. A bit like Keldenmon had that a lot in his career, just being in the top 10 and then boom, he's gone. But Fulsang seems like he took a real hit today with that mechanical and it looked like he just gave up for a bit at the end. So I hope he can find his mental strength again and he can get back in and and show his teeth and become a competitor again in the last week of this uh, Giro. But he's lost his top 10, which is uh, a big thing already. He lost five places. Bensteiner now on 10th in GC. Maznad on 9th. Micah on 8th. Hindley on 7th. Conrad on six, so you've got situations where you've got two riders of teams in the top 10 with Masnada and Almeida in the top 10, Bernsteiner and Bilbao in the top 10, and Conrad and Micah in the top 10, so that's something I found curious here. I think today Pozzavivo looked stronger than Nibali and probably looked well, some almost the strongest out of the GC men. Um, it's the second gaps are still pretty small. Almeida extended it by a few bonus seconds to Calderman and Bilbao, I think, is now 14 seconds ahead of Pozzavivo in fourth. It's still pretty much 50 seconds covering fifth through to 10th 
I'm not sure how Masnada is really going to go on the Piancavallo stage. I wouldn't be, I just don't see him being competitive on that stage. Um, I think Almeida will probably do, could do a better job than him there. And Bora going under the radar here on GC. Raphael Micah and Patrick Conrad, I think Micah can definitely grow with the race. And I'd be very worried about them on Piancavallo, that's for sure. And even if Sunweb can throw Hindley up the road for Kelderman is something that that would put the other teams under a lot of pressure. You've got Kelderman sitting second GC, Hindley at a minute 20 back now. So they get to Piancavallo. He's probably going to, this will all change maybe after the ITT. But theoretically, if this stayed the same where they all are now, you throw Hindley up the road, Trek, you've got to decide, do we let him get a bit of a gap and let Kelderman sit on or, or what do we do? So it's shaping up very, very nicely this Giro d'Italia. Another nice stage today. Let's just hope COVID doesn't affect it too much. I think, being honest, the precautions taken by the race organisers at the Giro are not as good as at the Tour de France. You hear what the riders have been saying. It's it's clear that's the case. The hotel situation is not as good. Um, so I get credit to ASO for being able to run the tour so smoothly. I'm a little bit worried about what will happen in the second rest day with the COVID tests, given that there seems to be a bit of a lag. And it's a shame that the pre-race of the pre-race favourites, okay, so Remco crashed at Lombardia. Carapaz got taken out by Ineos to go to the Tour de France. Thomas crashed by that bid on. Kreisvike out with COVID. Yates out with COVID. Vlasov out with sort of an undisclosed sickness. That's six, <laughs> six favourites. And it is kind of looking at the the silver lining. It just means we get to see these riders we don't often see at the pointy end of, the, of a GC, like Kelderman and Bill Bow and Conrad and co really, really fighting it out. And I find that kind of exciting because it's not the same names every time, although it is unfortunate that those other six guys, but that have been can't compete but yeah that's the silver lining for me just seeing different names and maybe different strategies and much much more open racing because today is the perfect example Bilbao goes up the road he would not have been able to do that in the Tour de France when Juan van Aert would have brought him back <laughs> laughing Carap Ineos tried to do the same thing with Carapaz attacking in I think oh, stage 13 maybe or yeah 13 or 15 and Dumoulin brought it back in about 30 seconds and they looked at Carapaz and said don't do that again whereas in the Giro we've got this open racing and GC contenders having to make smart decisions about who they bring back or not like for example they let McNulty go up the road a little bit because they don't really care about his battle with Gagan Hart between 13th and 15th um, but yeah any last thoughts on this stage Benji before we uh, preview tomorrow's stage, or, or what do you what are you seeing from tomorrow's stage? Any more interimini? I don't think there's much more of a chance for GC action there. Yeah, I think it's a much less chaotic stage in the sense of the amount of walls that there's in the parkour, and they're not as steep. But there is going to be some action. I'm thinking that Demar could get over this, so um, he'll get to the peloton. He'll get to the finish in the peloton here, unlike stage ten. And I do feel like this stage was more than I expected from it. I didn't expect this much because I still believe that 
the gap between the last hill and the finish was a lot, but in the stage it felt like nothing. And that's mainly because the elite group was so thinned out already once they crossed that last Tortoretto that in general it just felt like a very, very, very tense final. And I love it. I generally do. But for tomorrow, I'm going to write down Arnaud Demar. Okay, fair enough. I mean, it, it's a much flatter stage tomorrow in comparison today to today. 182K is finishing in Rimini. It's got an intermediate sprint about 105Ks in before a Category 4 climb, 3Ks at 5%. Another, another short climb, descent. Then another set of four pretty punchy Liège-style climbs. Uh, these are more like Liège climbs than the climbs today. The climbs today were harder than you'd see in Liège, actually, but these are similar. 1.3K is 6%. 700 meters, 7%, 1.4k is 5.5%. I think it's going to be closer for DeMar tomorrow, and they finish about 25k's from the finish, so it's even further out from the finish, the last one. So FDJ got to do a better job tomorrow. It's one that I think DeMar can win. I think in my notes, I had DeMar winning this. Uh, in the preview show, Gaviri is definitely not winning it. But I'm going to change. My pick, Benji. I've, Matthews is out with COVID. I I don't think Demar is that much better than Peter Sagan, even in the flat sprints. And I think that stage, the first one that Demar won, proved that to me. So you've got Demar. Demar obviously made me look like a fool today. I'm going to pick Sagan for back to back stage wins. Um, so yeah, hopefully they increase the pace on these climbs and drop under Demar because if he's exposed. And he's got no one to help him on these climbs, like his big units probably won't be able to help him too much, then they could definitely drop him and UAE should help Sagan as well. Or do you think I mean, yeah, do you think Sagan is gonna to be too tight after today or um is the last climb just too far from the finish? I just love how he went in like ten days of a time span from the Mars surviving climbs up to 24%, four of them in about 40 kilometers towards him dropping on the smallest hills in Rimini. <laughs> yeah, fool me once, you won't fool me again. I'm mad even, on him. Even if they don't drop him, I think that's again going to be closer than we expect. He's better than in the Tour de France. He's already better than in the first week of the Giro. He's clearly growing in the race itself. And I think he's going to be up there in the sprint. I think that sprint that we spoke about with the um, line deviation of Demar, I think he was strong there as well. I think he could have actually done more if not for that line deviation, but he chose to stay back at that point. We won't talk about the line deviation anymore, but I believe at that point you see that he's close already to Demar. And the only moment that Demar really showed extreme difference with the rest was on that stage where Sigan wasn't even in play where his, uh, he was certainly out positioned. So I believe that Sagan can be up there. So you're not taking a bad pick for sure. But I'm supporting Demar in case of Gaviria. I don't think he's going to be too good today. He crashed at the start of today's stage and it looked like he could continue, but still falling on your elbow and knee is probably not great for the sprint of the day after. That was our Giro Stage 10 review. Go and watch the last 40 kilometers. A quick little preview of tomorrow's one dot pro race, but it's got a bit of prestige to it. The uh, Shell de Preche uh, race in Belgium. It's the 108th edition. It's got a lot of uh, history. It's in Shorten. 
and does a lap and finishes again in Shorten. 170 Ks. I don't know why Benji's laughing. And <laughs> it's almost pancake flat. There's some... Are there, are there cobbled streets in this, Benji? Is the, I feel like the finale is cobbled. There's not too much cobble in that, but there are cobbles, but it's it's those one-star cobbles in Paris-Roubaix that don't really do anything. So you can't really expect this race to be decided on cobble sections, and most likely this is blatantly going to go to a mass sprint. I don't know, but I think this is a different parkour. This is not the usual parkour. I think they're doing a circuit in Scholten themselves and never even go out of that. And I think they did that for COVID, if my memory serves me right. So I think they're skipping all cobble sections as well. So this is going to be a very chaotic race. They're going to crash in the final circuit. I'm I'm promising you that. I hope not. But that's a very chaotic circuit and it's very technical. So I don't see how they get through that without crashing the final circuit. But I do believe that it's going to be a pretty solid mass sprint. But since it's technical and so forth, I'm looking more towards a rider like Caleb Ewan, who has that acceleration to come around in the end. If you've got a corner with about, I don't know where the corner is in, in this circuit, so I'm just guessing here. But if it's like 400 meters before the line and he's in a good position or in a bad position, he can still correct himself. While if a rider like Kristoff is eight positions back at that point, he's out of the contention. So I feel like Caleb Ewan has a solid train here as well, his usual train, Roger Kaluga. I feel like Kelsey de Beist is also part of his train usually. And there's this young guy in the steam floor, Andrew Meers. We don't talk about him too often, but he's actually a pretty solid rider this year. And I think we're going to see a lot of him in the future. He's a, a talented Belgian. So I like staring at him because of that. Mark Cavendish is at the start here. Possibly his last stage. Do you feel like... Well, context. Cavendish at the end of Hand Wevelheim had a small interview where it wasn't really even an interview. He passed someone that was supposed to interview him and he just started crying and it was pretty pretty sad to see and he said this is perhaps my my final race or something along those lines i think that was the quote so he just went off and didn't really continue the interview so it looked like he's not at the best levels when it comes to mental aspect of himself i hope he can get the goodbye he deserves in his career and I don't feel like this is the moment to do that because Mark Cavendish had a wonderful career plenty of great races he should end it on a, on a race like I don't know Tour of Britain next year where he would be racing in home soil could perhaps get a good result in a, in a sprint somewhere if it's a relatively mediocre start list and it can be something that people look forward to with Tom Bonin's end of career thing it was so prepared. It was not that it was suddenly. It feels like this is very sudden for Cavendish's career. And we've been saying quite a few times that maybe it's time that he doesn't need to ride in the world tour level anymore. But I, I'd give him one more year personally. But Yeah, it's a shame. Like Contador and Bonin, as you mentioned, they plan their retirement properly to finish with a bit of a, uh, a tour, etc. Like, who did like Kobe Bryant did, you know, his whole last season in the NBA was all planned and he got like an ovation and um as they went around America, etc. Cavendish, I think the opposite is happening. I think he wants to not retire. I think he wants to keep riding World Tour next year, but he's not getting contract offers because he's not really riding at World Tour level. So he's being almost forced out of he is being forced out of World Tour 
And that's a shame for him, but it's also obvious that that was happening. So I feel like he could have, I don't know, I guess he's trying his best to just get a new contract. And he was in the break at Henvalen the other day. So shame for him. But again, he should be a multimillionaire as well. So there's there's shades of feeling sorry for people. Um, and I feel like he should maybe go with a team that will get an invite to Britain next year or Yorkshire, etc., uh, and maybe maybe some wildcard invites to the, the Belgian flat races that really suit him, which he can still do okay in, and do that next year instead and just maybe step down to pro Conti level if rather than being on the world tour team and it not really working. And you were right, Benji, to say the Shelby Price parkour has changed because normally it goes from Netherlands to Belgium, finishes just outside of Antwerp, and obviously that's not possible with COVID, with racing not permitted in the Netherlands. So, yeah, last year it started in Ternetsen and some near Middleburg or something in an island or peninsula in, in Holland and then went towards Antwerp where the finish line was. So, obviously, they're doing just laps just outside of Antwerp this year instead. Um, normally for Shell Price, it's a sprinter that wins. It's been, I think, Fabio Jakobsen in 2019 and 18. Kittel in 17, 16, 14, 13, 12, and Christoph in 15, and Cavendish actually won this in 2011. So for the start list tomorrow, my it, it's really good start list. Uh, you've got the best sprinters in the world pretty much here, except for DeMar, um, Bennett, Ewan, uh, who else we got? I'm <laughs> missing. Pedersen. And uh, that's who I think will win. I think Mads Pedersen will back, go back-to-back back and win tomorrow. If it's raining a little bit as well, obviously he uh, he can't lose. Malier haven't really liked what I've seen from him last couple of races at um, big at World Tour level. Although he went okay at Torino, Buani maybe is a half decent shout for an outsider. I think I might get on Buani as well. I think Ewan, yeah, I'm not yeah, I just don't see it for Ewan. Uh, as you said, Benji, technical. The road surface, even if it isn't cobbled, it ain't great. Ackerman, I haven't really liked. Yeah, I think uh, Buani or Pedersen is who I like for tomorrow. Uh, I think Trek has got one of the best lead-outs in the world. Arvid Klein of Rival is going to be in the top five, because why the hell not? He's shown some talent already, and I feel like tomorrow is going to come out. So top five for him. But I'm going to put my money, or not really money, on an outsider. If it rains, Peterson, of course, but if it doesn't rain, Alexander Kristoff. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up for today. We've covered this Hilda Price preview, named the names that we expect to do good at it, and next to that, the Giro 10 race recap. We're back tomorrow with Stage 11, brought to you by LaCole. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 